Today's healthcare can be confusing, frustrating, and at times downright scary. Here to help with clearing up the confusion, putting an end to the frustration, and making it a lot less scary. Here from Los Angeles are your hosts, Eric and Roy, on the Informed Patient Radio Show. Welcome to the Informed Patient Radio Show, and we are your hosts. Eric and Roy. This is the show where we share valuable information that can help educate, inform, and empower anyone to better navigate the healthcare system. On today's show, we have a very special guest calling from Whittier, California, is Dr. Teresa Nunez. Welcome to the show, Dr. Nunez. Hi. Good to be here. All right. So we like to always start the show with asking about uh, our guest's background. So if you can kind of give us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and uh, how you started the journey from being a nurse up into being a psychologist, if you would. Okay. I began in the San Gabriel Valley. I uh, attended Marketable High School in Alhambra. I grew up in San Gabriel. Okay. Um, When I went to high school, we had a counselor who um, didn't do anything for us. She never encouraged us to go to school. And when when I did meet with her and told her, I wanted to apply to college. She's like, oh, no, dear. You need to get a job, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, really wow. um, patronized, patronized me. Oh. So um, I applied to the University of Southern California. I was accepted into their nursing program. Wow. And I began my nursing career um, studies there. But then, like a dummy, I got married very young at 20. Oh. And then started having children. And oh. I had to stop school, start school, you know, back and forth. And then they closed the program. Oh, so the only thing I could do at that point was become an LVN. And I thought, well, that's good. I'll become an LVN. I'll do this for a bit, and then I'll return to school when my kids get a little older. Okay, makes sense. So yeah. I became an LVN. Um, I took, they allowed me the um, credit to, to be able to take the NCLEX. Okay. I did so. And then um, through different circumstances, basically divorce and having three small kids, I didn't get to go back to school for many years. Mm. So in in my LVN and as part of USC um, to pay back the, the loans, tuition loans, they had a program through um, an independent um, nonprofit clinic that allowed you that 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 had a um, mobile homeless um, outreach uh, program that had a physician assistant. They would have an LVN, a medical assistant, and a social worker, and we'd go throughout. L.A. County looking for um, homeless people and trying to give them basic health care. So I did that for about three years, totally enjoyed it until the funds dried up. And then I worked in various places as an LVN. Uh, I did a little bit of time in in the hospital, but I didn't like it. So I went to to the clinic, and it was better with having young children. Um, The clinic setting is better because no weekends, no evenings, that kind of thing. More like banker hours, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So when my youngest was um, probably a junior in high school, I decided, okay, now it's time for me. But uh, there had been a lot of changes since I was at USC. Uh, the computer had been invented. I didn't know how oh. to use a computer as an LVN. We never used one. I didn't know how to use Microsoft, or no, I didn't even know who um, Bill Gates was. Oh. <laughs> um, I had no idea. I was raising kids. How you know? How am I supposed to know? Right. So um, I began um, trying to learn the computer. My kids were of course, way ahead of me and, and helped me. My eldest daughter, um, the most patient soul in the world, um, helped me every time I erased something because I didn't know <laughs> to save. So you had you had live-in tech support. That's what you're basically saying. <laughs> it, 
Yes, and luckily I had I had tech. Um, I had IT in my home with my children. That's right. So, so I started with a couple of online classes at a junior college just to get. Um, uh, you know, I took a, uh, English again so I could learn how to write again oh, okay. because you forget. I took speech. Um, I went to the junior college and took speech because I know I'd have to speak. Um, in front of a group of people, I knew that that, that was from speaking with my children. I knew that, and I already had one child already in college. Right. So when I felt I was ready, um, Mount St. Mary's College had a um, weekend college that allowed you to work, and um, so I attended that, and, and I received my bachelor's in social work. Nice. So I, I figured, with all that I had seen as a nurse, that um, social, social workers were needed. There was a lot of um, problems with family. So I thought that was the way to go. So when I started researching for um, master's programs at Mount St. Mary's Weekend College, they had a master's in business with the emphasis in, in public health. So I thought, huh. So I looked at it. Um, I investigated it. I went to, uh, I went and met with um, some students and some professors, and I decided that I would get the very coveted and very difficult MBA um, I would work full time and do this accelerated program. I thought I'd go nuts. It was 14 months of oh, wow. uh, grueling torture. But lucky for me, I met four younger, um, outstanding individuals that helped me. Um, they took advantage of my um, life experience to help them, and they helped me with the math portion of the MBA, which okay. is uh, yeah. which is extremely difficult when you haven't had math for many many years. Um, I hadn't had statistics in many years, so it, it was a great challenge, and I was very excited when I finally graduated and, and uh, was hooded. I was was thrilled. Yes. Then I thought, okay, well, the MBA wasn't my thing. I was happy to have it. It did increase my salary. It did increase um, my responsibilities at work. Um, I still didn't feel like this was what I wanted to do, and I and I also enjoyed being in school, being with people that were younger, they were usually 15, 20 years younger. I enjoyed being with them. Um, it made me feel like a better parent. I was better able to parent my children that were now, all three of them were in college. So here we are, a family of four, everyone in college. And I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to get a master's in psychology because that was always my interest and my dream since I was a kid to be a psychologist. And coincidentally, my mother found a paper when she was going through some stuff that I had written in fourth grade that had asked, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And I had written that I wanted to help people and be an adolescent psychologist, all misspelled, but that's what I wanted to be. Oh, wow. So I went at, back to Mount St. Mary's, my home. Um, they had a great psychology program, a uh, marriage family therapist, or just uh, psychology, counseling psychology, which is the route I went. So the first semester, my first, I was taking three classes. They were so easy. I didn't need the book. I, it was just <laughs> all on my, just from being a nurse and from being a mom on their, on my own for three years, I was able to, you know, not even study and, and get A's. So I went to my counselor and I said, this is too easy. And oftentimes the professors are looking at me for the answers because, I was older than them. You know, <laughs> That's great. Not, That's awesome. Not that I'm, not that I'm the smartest person in the world, but it was just life experiences that sure. that got me. And and because being being a counselor is also listening, and I I've done that for so many years, just automatically before I was even trained to do so. So she says you you probably need to get a doctorate. So 
it just so happened that one of those courses was a um, a counseling course. Okay. And so you had to be, we had partners, and the person who had me, um, who, had, who had to interview me, she thought, <clears throat> excuse me, she thought, let me, um, you know, investigate for you some programs. And she found a, a wonderful program that would take, um, it was at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, mm-hmm. and it would take my my master's in my, my MBA credit and the master master leveled um, psychology classes. So I it wouldn't start till the next year. So I took another three classes. So I transferred um, six courses over. I began my um, work and I decided on the PsyD, um, the Doctorate of Psychology, rather than PhD, because I didn't want to research. I wanted to counsel. I didn't want to right. learn about Freud and. All, all the, his friends, Erickson, all, all yes, of those. all his friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to learn theory. Right. I, I really, after taking a theories class, I thought, what is this going to do in the real world? How does something that happened, you know, two, three hundred years ago, how is it going to help us? Yeah. Um, today's in today's society, and with today's different um, ethnicities and diversion. So, um, I began my journey. Um, it, you take your courses, and once you get to a certain point. You have to start working on your dissertation and what you what you want to um, really emphasize on. Right. Since my original job, I've spent um, nearly 35 years working with homeless, and then I switched it over to the homeless veteran because I found too many veterans in the street. Right. And that to me is deplorable. So um, I then began associating myself with the American Legion Women's Auxiliary and some of the veteran groups in San Gabriel Valley, Vet Hunters. Um, mindful warrior, wounded warrior, sure. all the different organizations, and right. and meeting more and more people and finding out all all of us that are out there that want to serve those who served. So I began my my journey of um, I chose post traumatic stress disorder in returning veterans and combat veterans and transitioning into everyday life. We had a we have an incredibly high suicide rate. It is now up to twenty a day in the United States wow. um, combat uh, veterans and warriors. Wow. That, <clears throat> excuse me, that have taken their life, and that again was deplorable. That yeah. in the streets, the misunderstanding from family. So um, that's I had twenty subjects. Unfortunately, during my two years of study and counseling, one of them did take their life. So I completed with nineteen. And uh, I wrote my dissertation, and um, after hours of counseling, hours of researching and putting it all together, and when they t- when they when you finish it and give it to, I give it to three different people for grammar and spelling and you know the English portion of it. Right. And I gave it to um, a naval officer, an Air Force officer, to check for accuracy, and then my. My counselors, I went back to Mount St. Mary's, and I had them look at it for the theory that I did have to apply, my right. own theory that I used. Yeah. So after getting everybody's okay, I submitted it, and first try, um, they gave me permission to bind, which was the most one of the most exciting days of my life. Yeah. So I got it bounded, and I sent it off, and then I flew out to Chicago and was ready to defend and, and to defend my research and my work. And I did so. I was scared. Um, I had many offers of friends and family to go with me, but I'm like, no, I'm doing this on my own. Right. So I did. I went in, and I um, at the end of 
of it was about 45 minutes. The end. There's, there was five individuals that came over and they congratulated me and they said, "Congratulations, Dr. Nunez." Oh, that must um, have been an amazing it was a feeling. Single most wonderful individual feeling that I've ever had. And um, I went out and I texted everybody and then I I called my mom and then I was crying hysterically just as she was. Wow. And um, then I began my counseling. What a great uh, story and what a great journey. That's really, really nice. Thank you. So did they, uh, I, I would say that I, I know they, with that school, do they keep all the dissertations in the library? They do, yeah. normally. However, they, when they receive an interesting topic um, that they, because this is what they do, this is all this school does is psychology. Right. They have nothing else. They submitted to different organizations and different entities, and mine was submitted to the Department of Defense. Oh. It was purchased by the Department of Defense. They own it. Well, the school and I own it, but they um, they have taken it, and it is given to combat veterans upon exit. Wow. And in two years, I'll write an um, updated version. Mm-hmm. I'll probably in a year, I need to start. Um, don't want to wait till last minute. Right. Um, and so... They confiscated my computer, my all of my notes that I gave them. I did maybe I tucked a few away, um, <laughs> and they they own all of it along with my school. So it is not in the library. It is oh. with the Department <laughs> of Defense. Okay, that's with the DoD. That's all right. And uh, we, as two veterans here on the radio, uh, we do appreciate uh, that you wrote that dissertation on that subject so yeah eric eric's yeah. reading my mind totally on that so yeah and and thank you too for your service thank oh you. thank you um so you are an lvn that went off and got your bachelor's degree master's degree and uh your uh, doctorate in psychology so you have uh, plenty of wallpaper <laughs> to adorn an office and okay so Right now, uh, I, I, you are working in a hospital and, uh, and in the uh, utilization management department. Um, and so you do that. But uh, can you talk to us a little bit about what you're, you're doing on the side with your doctorate? So I specifically want to counsel combat vets that are transitioning. Right. So when I say that, people say, well, you must work for the VA. No, I will not work for the VA because then I'll have to treat everybody. Okay. And that's not what I want to do. Right. It takes a veteran um, who, who comes out of the military anywhere from three to six months to get a, an appointment or go to get the paperwork and get an appointment with a primary care doctor. And then it takes up to six to nine additional months to get the approval and the appointment to see a psychologist. So in that amount of time, we're losing our veterans, we're losing our guys and girls that are coming back, and there's no one to help them. So at least in the San Gabriel Valley, I can do my very best when they are, when I'm told to help and counsel these individuals um, and families. So that's what I do. Um, I have be- become well-known um, in the area as someone that will help. So I, I do so. I choose the San Gabriel Valley rather than where I live because um, I don't want to run into anybody and then they see me and they see me talking and they get a little paranoia and they think I'm talking about them and, and it mm. sets them back and I don't want to do that. So I stay right. uh, you know, out of out of the way, that, out of the area that they're in. Oh, okay. 
So let me ask you, because uh, it's, it's, I'm naive about that, but you were talking about, and, and a lot of people, especially listeners, probably see in the, uh, in the media, there's been these long waits for veterans to get any type of health care, let alone the mental health care. Um, is it during the time when they're getting out for them and, and the time that they get out and the time that they actually can be seen, is that the vulnerable time where those, where a lot of the suicides are happening? Am, am I yeah. guessing correctly or? So, so what happens is you come home and everyone's so excited to see you and there's a party and everybody's there and it's all great until you have nothing when no one, you're just another person. Right. And you're without a job. And if you're young and you go home and your dad tells you, hey, uh, you know, you got trained to get a job, get a job, get a job. Um, oftentimes when they're alone, alone with their thoughts and their memories, they become depressed. They stay in their room. They physically cannot get out of bed. They cannot. They cannot sleep. So when they do sleep, it's maybe during the day. So they're not looking for the job. They're not doing what they need to do. And the more that they're yelled at, the more that they're belittled, the more that, you know, no one's parents and wives are not, and husbands are not understanding that what they've seen or what they've done, there's some ramifications. Mm -hmm. And I think this generation, rather than our World War II vet, so you take a World War II vet, they shut down. They don't talk about it ever. Mm -hmm. They might talk about a friend they made. They might talk about the weather. I remember being at Christmas, and my father-in-law would say he was a World War II vet. He was the only one who made it home from his city. They all, you know, and they were all drafted together. They all went together. He's the only one who came home. It was so bad that he didn't even go back to Chicago. He came to Los Angeles because he couldn't face that, and he kept quiet about it most of his life. And one Christmas, he said, "I remember 40, 41 years ago, or whatever it was." At the time, he said, I was eating a can of stew cold in the can on Christmas. That was the only kind of references he ever made about the war. Oh, okay, yeah. He was in a ditch, you know, waiting, standing guard, or, you know, doing, doing whatever his job was. When he came home, it was expected that he'd work, and he did. He got a job at Southern California Gas, and he worked all of his life. He had poor um, communication skills. He had never embraced his children, never told them he loved them, never. They knew it, but he never said it. He never voiced it. And that's often what I hear from the children of the World War II vets. You take the vets that are coming home now that play video games, that are shooting things and are these, you know, these games that they have, and it desensitizes them in a way. So mm. when they actually are shooting at real live individuals and mm -hmm. they're seeing it and they're smelling it and they're tasting it. It's a whole different thing. Oh, yeah. Some can cope, some cannot. And that's what we're finding. We're finding that they're not able to cope, that they're getting a lot of pressure when they come home. There's no understanding because there's no, there's no education for, for the families. Um, and if they don't have families, that's even worse. So we, we try our best to, when, when we're told about them to, to get to them, to counsel them, to tell them they're not alone, to tell them that they're loved, to tell them they're appreciated, to build up their self-confidence so that they have some kind of self-worth. If not, they start going where, what do you do when, you, when, you're, when you're hurt? You numb yourself. So you start drinking. That doesn't work. You could turn to drugs. That's where we find many of our veterans on the streets because their family isn't going to deal with them. They're not going to, 
or they just don't want to come home. They just don't want to hear it. So we find a lot out in the streets that are totally capable of manning up or growing up and, and getting a job, but they just need some help. And if we don't get them the help, they die on the streets. They die from an overdose. They take their own lives because they simply don't have the ability to do what they need to do on their own. They need a little assistance. Now, is there any kind of, uh, is there any organizations or any kind of help out there for the families to, uh, so they can get a better understanding and insight on what the veterans are going through? No, absolutely no. Wow. It's it's really sad, and with, even with all the media talking about it, you know, it took us five years to get get it down from twenty two deaths a day to to two, twenty, just to lose two a day. Um, it took it took an incredible amount of time, and that's individuals working together um, that serve those who served, and then oftentimes, once their child has died from their own hands, right. we get a lot of people that way that become um, advocates because they don't want another parent to go through it. Right, okay. So I, work with many, I work with many of those moms. I do some grief counseling as well. Um, and I come across a lot of moms, not so much wives, but, but moms um, that want to um, give back and help those that have served. And what have you found out that uh, I, this is a fascinating sub subject? So forgive me for asking these questions, but do you know if there is anything lately, or do you know if the Veterans Administration uh, do they have any plans to further address this, or is there, or are they basically saying, hey, we don't have the funding or the manpower, or what? What have you been hearing? If you're hearing anything at all, um, there is. We have in the American Legion um, Women's Auxiliary, we have an individual who's a legislative um, officer, and what she does is she looks, she contacts our, our senators, um, our assemblymen on the state level, on the national level, to find out what are they doing, what are you doing for our veterans, and then we do we do find out about legislation that is coming up for vote. Mm -hmm. We bombard our senators uh, with emails and our older women will handwrite letters, and we try our very best when we know a new bill is coming up. Um, in Los Angeles, uh, Mayor Gil Garcetti has uh, made several um, speeches about how he's what he's going to do, and um, he's had funds allocated from the L.A. County Board of Supervisors mm -hmm. to help us with the homeless problem and, more importantly, the homeless veteran problem. Um, there's been organizations that have tried so hard to give them temporary housing. Um, there's many organizations throughout L.A. County that have winter shelters, but nothing for the summer. Um, so there is help coming down the line, but um, it's not fast enough. You know, anything political or government doesn't happen overnight. But I do see um, an increase in um, the amount of veterans that are getting help. Oftentimes they don't want help but many times they will take help. And sometimes it takes them three or four times to get um, into the right um, program that is best suited for them, just like anybody else. Um, 
So we try to get them in treatment if they want it. Oftentimes they need treatment. Other times they just need um, kind of a halfway house. They need to be shown what they need to do. I was working with a veteran this week who uh, was one of our best um, best veterans that we had, one of our best success, success stories. And he was given this wonderful opportunity for a job about a month ago. And he didn't know about the 90-day probation, and he didn't know about, you know, you just can't not show up. You have to call. He, there's so many things that in their 30s they don't understand because they didn't have that job. They went in at 17. They, didn't, they don't know what it's like. They don't know that you can't just take – you got a toothache, so you're going to stay home. No, you need to work through it. You need to, you need to do these things because you're on a 90-day probation. Right. So he ended up losing this job because he just didn't know the things – so we failed him in not telling him what needs to be done, what it all means. But at the time, we really didn't know that that was one of the things we need to work on as well, because we learn from everybody and we continue to change and develop our programs so that we could better serve them. But we learn now, okay, we're going to have to tell them when they get the job, not just a, you know, a job that's for a week or two, what they need to do. Wow, that's a... Oh, a lot to, lot to absorb there. Say, so, Doc, I wanted to ask you a quick question. Um, uh-huh. On the support for these veterans, can you give us a, some highlights on how much support is maybe coming from organizations like the the American Legion, I know you mentioned, and say the, maybe the VFW, or are there any other fraternal organizations that are offering not just maybe financial support, but volunteer-type support, too, for our veterans? There is, you would not believe the amount of um, organizations and non-for-profits that are out there um, that try their very best through art therapy, through music therapy, um, training dogs to be PTSD dogs so that they, they are just basically small dogs that um, it is, researchers found that, um, you know, when they have the responsibility of this dog, um, it gives them an, an added feeling of, of self-worth. Um, so there's an organization called Pause for the Cause. For I've, the cause. I've heard of that, yes. And Yes, and, you know, um, there's this wonderful artist, Kenneth, his last name is, escapes me at this time, but he um, had major PTSD, and his way of expressing himself was drawing. And... I've heard him speak a couple of times, and he brings his drawings from the very beginning, and they're scary to the beautiful artwork that he's done now, like five or six years later. Oh. And his therapy was all through his uh, drawings, his his photography, his you know that that part of him that was able to express himself. I have an, an, another um, new directions the, um, the veterans shelter. They have a choir. And one day I went to listen to the choir, and the choir has um, men and women who are all veterans, and they were all in the street. And they talk about their journey, and then they sing a song. And it's one of the most uplifting um, programs that I've ever seen and successful. And, you know, they'll say, I was in the streets for 20 years, and I've been clean for 15 because of music. Music is what made me, you know, music and meeting these other other veterans, the camaraderie that that they've each found within each other. So all there's so many organizations, the Lions and the Elks, they all help um, raise money for awareness, raise money for um, just helping. They don't know how to pay bills. They 
sometimes come out with a bonus so they buy a car. So what do you? What do they do? They don't. They crash it because I know what happens. They lose it. Why? Because they didn't know they had to have insurance. Very simple things that we take for granted. They don't know. They truly don't know. So the transition period from becoming a veteran, a combat veteran especially, to living in the real world is they're lost. Some of them have family that guide them, and many don't. And those that don't are the ones that are at risk, and those are the ones that we try to help. And there are so many organizations. Um, whatever your interest is, you'll probably find an organization. And the more you're involved, the more you're involved. I go. I went to a welcome home Vietnam veteran um, anniversary party at Rose Hills, and um, I met several people, and I volunteered to do even more work. And um, it just becomes kind of infectious, and it's, I've met so many wonderful people. I was in Tehachapi last week supporting a veterans organization that helps the farm belt, one of our areas that is most um, impacted because of the drought. Many of the younger, many of the, the fathers have gone off to other states to pick, and the children as they age, there's no money for college, they join the military. So there's many families that are really struggling. So we, Tehachapi is kind of where we start our program, and we have food funneled in, down into the to the farm belt to help the veterans' family that are there, because there really isn't a lot of um, American legions or veteran groups there in the farm belt because there's nothing else going on. Um, so we, in statewide, make an effort to help our fellow Californians' families because there's often in the San Gabriel Valley we have some of the most affluent areas, and they don't need the help as much as other parts of the state. So we do, um, we do our very best to help um, throughout the state. One of the most impacted areas in, in our area is the city of Pomona. There's a lot of homelessness there. There's a lot of homeless veterans. There's a lot of Hispanic families who I work with the most since I'm one of the only bilingual people um, in getting them to understand and getting, getting their sons or daughters um, the help that they need and getting them out of the shelter. Pomona, Pomona has an old armory that they use um, where they, during the wintertime, will um, house and shower and laundry and feed those first 250 men and 125 women that come through the doors. And uh, oh. I, we, help, we help there as well, wherever, wherever we can help, wherever we... Is, is there, a say, a primary website or place where, let's say, your family member, your friend, and you're concerned about your, you know, your loved one or, or your friend that uh, you think might be having some issues as a veteran that, that they can they can go to to figure out where to start or any suggestions on, you know, if they could want to volunteer to help also? Would they just look up, like, the American Legion and then call them? Or what, what would be the, the best uh, route, would you think? Um, I personally think that there's no one website that says, you know, veteran that need help. You know, there's there's a suicide hotline. There's all of all of that. If you Google any of that stuff, if you if you want to contact an American Legion, it's kind of hit and miss because it, we all run the same, but some are more involved than others, and some are larger and have more resources. I belong to the Pasadena 280, and we have an amazing amount of re, uh, resources there, but it depends on who you ask when you get there. 
um, if you're going to get the right person. Hopefully you do. And hopefully if that individual that's sitting there will say, hey, you know what, this is the phone number you need to contact. That's how um, I get contacted. If someone is there and they, they think they're they run across a veteran that's in trouble, they'll call me. And if I can, I'll drive down there or I'll ask them for a contact number and reach out to that individual. And within our we're very fortunate in our unit to have two psychologists. Um, so either myself or, or the, the other one can help. Um, but it's kind of a hit and miss. Um, you know, most people will, t- will refer you to the VA, but then again, you're waiting nearly nine months. Sure. That's so um, I, I would try American Legion and VFW. They're primarily um, there to help veterans. If you don't get help, help them the first one, go to the next one. They're all over. I know in the city of Whittier, we have um, both VFW and an American Legion. The city of Pasadena has two American Legions and a, a VFW. So it, they're in every, almost every city. And if not, you just keep looking until you find it. And you, it's just like anything else, you have to have the patience and the perseverance to really try to, to get the help you need, just like our seniors that might need a need help from their family because they're they're not getting the help you, you, someone needs to step up and we need more people to step up because it's a it's a huge problem it absolutely is that just tell you it breaks my heart with this uh interview we're doing with you to, to think that um that we're just not doing a better job of helping our veterans and that the suicide rate is as high as it is that uh i don't know well, uh, yeah, you shed some light about a topic that, uh, you know, the media is not, in my opinion, not doing a very good job of really, truly explaining what's happening. I mean, there's been a focus on, you know, just, you know, your run-of-the-mill veterans not getting medical care because of the very long waits with the Veterans Administration. And you might see some commercials about wounded warrior projects, other things like that, and just people that are have been maimed. Uh, you know, uh, from combat. But I haven't really seen a whole lot of stuff about what we just talked about now. So uh, right. I, I just I just think uh, it's, it. you know, I think we can do better on uh, shedding more light on the subject and uh, getting everybody together on the same, you know, page of music. And so hopefully uh, people that listen to this episode um, can maybe get involved, whether it be talking to your assemblymen or your congressmen and uh, express their concerns, and also maybe contacting American Legion, Veterans of Foreign Wars, and find out, you know, how maybe they can help out uh, and stuff like that. So I think we just need more, we need A, more dialogue, and and B, more involvement, correct? Correct, absolutely. Yeah. So we'll go ahead and link all that stuff on our website and uh we'll uh, we'll we'll do our best to try to encourage people to do that and maybe we can even have uh a, another episode with you and maybe some uh uh some officials that uh are are involved with this and maybe we can have a, a even more in-depth interview and episode. Uh, would you be uh would you be okay with that? Absolutely. Anything yeah. that can sure. that can benefit our veterans and prevent another life oh absolutely um yeah yeah when you you gave us those numbers about how many suicides are happening that's a you know that's a (laughs) wow we hear more about people you know uh getting killed with ieds out there and by the combat but 
what you just told us about when they come here and what's happening, that's just absolutely devastating. That's right. I have no words for it, but devastating. So, but that like, so, but thank you so much for being on the show in this episode. Can we, and like I said, we'd like to have you on a couple more times. Is that's okay with you? That's anything to get the word out. I'm willing to do. Of course. Yeah. It is, it is my passion. It is, um, what, what makes me, um, who I am. And I'm proud, uh, you know, to get a doctorate over the age of 50 is yeah. in itself a trial. And I made a promise that if I was able to complete my journey, I would give everything I had to something good. And this is what I do. I try my very best to serve those who have served every day, every day, every day. I wear the American flag on my clothes every day. Um, I thank a veteran every day as I come across them all the time. It's the least I can do. I, I never served, but I benefit every single day from those who have served. Well, I'd say you're serving now. So, Anyway, Doc, listen, uh, it's been really a great honor and a pleasure having you on the show. And um, well, Anyway, with that, folks, uh, it's, that's it for this episode. So stay tuned next time where we will continue to share valuable information for you and your loved ones. For more information regarding the show, our guests, and more about us, please visit informedpt.com and like us on Facebook. We also invite you to tell your friends and family about the show. So until next time, please take care. You have been listening to the Informed Patient Radio Show with Eric and Roy. For more information, please visit us at informedpt.com. Tune in next time for more information regarding the healthcare system and how it affects all of us.